Welcome to the founders of Web3 series by Outlier Ventures and me, your host, Jamie Burke. Together, we're going to meet the entrepreneurs, their backers, and the leading policymakers that are shaping Web3. Together, we're going to try to define what is Web3, explore its nuances, and understand the mission and purpose that drive its founders. If you enjoy what you hear, please do subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission that is Web3. Today, I'm really happy to welcome on Richard Crabe, founder of Numeri, described as building the world's first open hedge fund by modeling the stock market, and what you promise to be the world's last hedge fund, and what you promote as the hardest data science tournament on the planet. I know that's kind of a subset of uh, the activity that you've done. So welcome to the show. Thank you. So I've seen lots of different descriptions of Numeri, I guess, because there's, there's different components to your activities. But the way that people can, to ease people into this, the way that they can think about you is as a new kind of hedge fund built by a network of data scientists. And it's really this approach that sets you apart. Um, so the reasons why I wanted you on the show is, as I understand that you're a first-time founder, it seems like you've only really ever known what we might now call Web3. So you're truly native to the space. And as an entrepreneur, I guess you've grown up in with the industry, you've evolved with it as an entrepreneur and as a founder. And so I think it's interesting to get a generational perspective on the space. We have a really wide range of founders on here from serial entrepreneurs to, um, to people like yourself. And so I'm always intrigued as to how somebody who's, who's kind of only knows this space, how, their perspective on it. I think, uh, and I know this is a fairly nebulous term or that there might be a kind of stricter definition of it, but you're, you were arguably one of the first DeFi projects before it was cool. And importantly, you've done that all out of the US which is unusual, and as far as I understand, without going to jail, so congratulations on, on that. And you're also one of the first startups to combine blockchain and AI or machine learning, and that's certainly what caught my attention early on, given our convergence thesis at Outlier and how we view the world. You've also consistently secured backing from big names in the industry, from Union Square Ventures, Coinbase, well, the founder of Coinbase, co-founder of Coinbase, as well as co-founder of Renaissance, the kind of centralized finance world or traditional uh, finance world, throughout all of these ups and downs, which is a really good testament. And I'm in intrigued to understand how you've got that. As an entrepreneur, you've got that stickiness with the top VCs. Um, you've also raised at different stages in the cycle. So in total, you've raised about $40 million through two separate rounds. I know you wouldn't consider it as an ICO because it's more of a private sale. And one of those was recently for $3 million, literally June uh, the 2nd, 2020. So it's going to be good to understand what's the same and what's different as you've gone through those cycles. So I'm really looking forward to, uh, to going deeper with you. So if I look at your kind of origins, you came from Cape Town. The accent's not that strong now actually you've kind of yeah well sanitized I, yeah i did study in the u.s so i think i've been here maybe 10 years total now okay right so you did uh, mathematics and economics in 2007 to 8 at university of cape town went to berkeley as an exchange student studying mathematics and economics 
2008-2009, and then Cornell, where you did a Bachelor of Arts in Mathematics, 2009-2012, to and then you went straight into Numeri, October 2015, and am I correct in understanding that was your first time founder, this was your first first um, no, I was, I'm a solo founder, but I'm not a first-time founder. Okay. He started companies when I was uh, 17, even. So I've been starting companies for a while. Some are still going, actually. There's a big uh, data science company that, that I started in South Africa, which is uh, doing really well, just raised around itself. But this was definitely the first time I started something by myself. And it was the sort of my feeling going into Numerai was that I was going to be starting the the sort of company I'd work on for 150 years was always my plan. So you're um, going to live for 150 years. That's also a, a plan. Yeah, that's part of the part of the game. Yeah. So maybe we just pause on that. How the hell are you going to live for 150 years? Is it you, you've gone vegan? You're doing, uh, you know, the keto diet. What, what's going on? So the reason it's 150 is because uh, my great grandfather started a, a newspaper sort of story of like five pounds in his pocket and he started a newspaper and then my grandfather took it over and my uncle then took it over. And so there's this long thing and, and it kind of lasted like 150 years or so. Each of them worked on it for about 50 years in their careers. And so I, I think there's somehow that tradition of doing a company for life somehow isn't fashionable anymore or something. And yeah. uh, I think that's the that's the right way to go. It makes, your, it makes you make better decisions. If you're, if you're hiring someone, you're wondering, I wonder if I can work with this person for 150 years. It makes, <laughs> makes better. Um, Numerai is also kind of famous for having a cryonics policy. <laughs> so we, we allow our employees to sign up for cryonics and get frozen uh, in the event of their legal death, but you know, not really when they're not really dead. So if you get run over by a bus or something like that, that's tough luck. You probably can't probably can't uh, do the cryo but if you if you're kind of on your deathbed uh and you do it quickly there's some hope that you might be be revived in the future wow and i mean i, I guess if you if you're thinking about it in the context of a family dynasty so multi-generational family business where you have the crowd numerai can transcend you right and this is one of the, the main principles or exciting things i guess around open source permissionless systems is that as a founder, you, you are there to kind of at the genesis, but these things should evolve and have a life of their own. So does that kind of factor into the thinking? Yeah, it definitely does. And the, even the number of people at Numerai, sometimes you ask an entrepreneur in Silicon Valley, how is it going? And it's like, oh, we just added 50 people, uh, 50 new engineers. And it's like headcount is like an important thing. And that headcount means people, you know, inside the the office. And for us, we kind of, I kind of imagined us maybe one day getting to like 20 employees and then we go to 19 and then we go to 18 <laughs> and we go down to zero. Um, freeze, freeze them all as, as they kind of go, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But maybe you can do that. And that's the point. Like Numerai, the real work is being done on the outside of the company by the data scientists. And so we want that to keep growing indefinitely. But we are inspired by Bitcoin and, you know, Bitcoin is kind of like the internet bank and we want to be like the internet hedge fund. And so Bitcoin, the miners are mining to kind of keep the security of the bank and on Numerai data scientists are data mining our data 
trying to find keep the market efficient. And I think for, you know those similarities will become more clear in the future. Um, we can't be totally decentralized like Bitcoin because we actually need to do trading on the real stock market. And uh, so the money has to be somewhere. It's with us. So, um, but I think in the future, it'll be possible to do more and more of Numerai in a decentralized way. Yeah, and I think this was one of the, the generational things that I was alluding to in that I guess when you when you were thinking about Numerai, it'd be good to get into the the Genesis story there, you know, what, why that? But I definitely, the, the idea, I mean, it's an equivalent of a gig economy for the financial services. And I know you've now extended that beyond financial services for kind of data marketplaces and the data economy and, and what have you. And I could imagine that, and I've said this a couple of times in other podcasts, that there is a generation born, and presumably you're in it, which probably never once will have a job, will always kind of be an equivalent of a freelancer, you know, moving in and out of these these different systems. So, um, you know, clearly you've got this entrepreneurial background. I actually didn't know about these earlier startups. That's really interesting. And, you know, you, you've, you're kind of very well-schooled. You've got all, all the right things on your CV. Presumably the typical direction that that career would go is you'd end up going and being a quant at a hedge fund and um, probably have a much easier life not having to solve for all of these problems because it's kind of solved for in a, in a centralized fashion. So what was it that, I mean, was that ever a possibility that you would end up on that career path or and yeah, if, no, if so why did it diverge? It is, uh, it is how I started briefly. So I was, uh, I did start a lot of companies in high school and in college. And then after graduating, I worked at a quant fund in Cape Town. And uh, it was pretty cool because they, they didn't have any machine learning, uh, but they had some quant. They also had fundamental investment and, and it was a good place to learn. But at the same time, while I was there kind of learning traditional finance, I was also, I remember reading the Ethereum white paper uh, back then. And, and so I was, yeah, had sort of enough free time to be able to connect these uh, ideas together early on in like 2014 or so. And so what was the thing that, so you've referenced this idea that you're collectively solving the hardest data science tournament on the planet. Was it the problem space or what was it about the problem space that, that drew you to this? Because you're clearly a smart guy. You could have applied that into any other different problems. Why, why this problem? Yeah, uh, the finance is, uh, first, yeah, being, being hard is already a compelling thing to, to want to work on it because, you know, the, all the good arguments for why the market's kind of efficient, efficient already, everybody, if everybody has the same past data, wouldn't they have found the same patterns that you're going to find and wouldn't they already correct them so that anything you can learn on the past maybe doesn't work out of sample on, on real life trading? So that was a big draw. Like, could you, how do you set machine learning up to work in that framework? It's very hard to make machine learning work on it, on this kind of non-stationary time series data, because you look at the past and it doesn't look like the future. And, and um, there's sort of no times in history that look quite like the coronavirus financial crisis, for example. So everything's kind of always new. That's a very inspiring thing for a lot of data scientists too. And so if you go to do a data science problem um, like on Kaggle or something like that, it's actually quite easy to 
you can do these data science problems where you're like modeling whale sounds or modeling and the, these things actually have solutions and you can get 98% accurate or whatever. On Numerai, you're kind of very lucky to get uh, 53% accurate or something like that. So it's a much harder problem and that makes it more interesting. So if we kind of focus on Numerai, the business first, could you talk us through the fund itself, you know, how much you have under management and the thesis, I don't know if you would describe it this way, but the idea that the crowd can solve for this problem more effectively, more efficiently than a centralized equivalent. Is, is that playing out? Are you outperforming the market and, and peers? Yeah. So the way we talk about, so what we have is this huge uh, test set and that means like it's like four years of data that none of our users have ever seen. And we have our own internal model that we put a lot of research into. And frankly, our own internal model is pretty good by itself. And so the question is, can the crowd, when you average all the users together, do they tend to make a model that's even better than the one we can make internally? And um, that wasn't true at Numerai for a while. It took a couple of years for us to get to that point. And um, now the, the user performance is, is significantly higher than our internal model. And so the users can take our sharp ratio much higher, take our returns much higher. And so it is working quite well. We couldn't get the sharp we had without, the, without relying on the users. And so during that period as a founder, as an entrepreneur, you know, you had this thesis and in absence of data, there's a, a bit of a leap of faith there that, it will play out over that time series. Is there any point you kind of get nervous? You think, oh, you know, maybe, maybe it's not going to play out. Or how, do you, how do you work through that? Yeah, almost to the day that Numerai started, there's been something called quant winter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so before crypto winter, uh, this is like December 2015 or so. And um, some of the factors that people use to model these things, like value in particular, the value factor, just haven't worked the same way. So the graph of the performance of market neutral hedge funds is kind of like the straight up line. 2014 was great, 2015 was great. And then suddenly it just flatlines. And for the last few years, it's been much harder to make returns in, in a market neutral fund. And so that's been a big challenge. And the way we first set up Numerai, we were quite exposed to those kinds of factors. Like if those factors weren't working, we weren't gonna work because we were playing in quant winter, uh, we had to redesign everything and make almost make the whole problem much harder so that whatever was learned would work in kind of all environments. So yeah, it's been a terrible time to start a quant fund. And I think <laughs> things, would have, <laughs> things would have gone a bit faster if we had started in, a, in another time, but also to have the, to basically start on the hard mode uh, more like God mode. It was, it was very excruciatingly difficult to make it all work, but I didn't really ever think it wouldn't work because, um, there's like almost like a mathematical principle behind numerai. So you don't have to worry that that mathematical principle isn't right. It's, it's a proof, which is basically if you can make a number of uncorrelated models that all have performance, that's going to be better than if you can, if you can make one model and, uh, that is absolutely true in practice, in theory. So um, if we look at the, the business, you manage 
institutional grade, long, short global equity strategy in a, in a hedge fund model, what percentage of that is digital assets versus, you know, equity? Is it, is it just pure equity? Yeah, 0%. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, interesting. Uh, and why is yeah. that? Because there's not enough data yet for, for crypto. And also the strategies that work in crypto are probably like very naive. Um, like I'm sure you can make a crypto quant fund that goes up, but it'll be doing kind of low tech things like, oh, I bought it on one exchange and I sold it on another exchange. It's just like arbitrage. You don't need machine learning to do arbitrage. But if you have decades of stock market data and you have 8,000 different stocks, you can you can really learn things. And that's where machine learning really shines is if you have a large data set. So the crypto data set's too, too small. I don't see us trading crypto for a while, maybe at some point. Maybe 50 years in your, your 150 year journey, you, you, yeah. you might start doing it. <laughs> maybe 20. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I look, I guess that makes sense because otherwise you, you're just taking advantage of short-term short-term opportunity, a small window rather than building this 150 plus year strategy. So uh, how much is under, under management now within the fund? And can you, can you, what can you tell us about the performance of it? We can't really talk about those things. Actually, there's regulations about talking about funds because we don't want to be seen to be marketing to people. Um, okay. We also not really open to individual investors. So but yeah, the AUM is still pretty low. Um, there's another regulation, which is kind of in conflict with the first regulation, which is uh, you have to announce how much money you have in your fund if you have more than 150 million. So uh, I think it's 150 million. So we have less than that. Right, okay, there you go. All right, that was good. Good, 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 good benchmark. Yeah. Um, so, so then this data science tournament aspect, I mean, this isn't, this is a specific tournament rather than how you describe what generally happens in the network, right? Yeah, the data science tournament is modeling the price movements of, of, of all the stocks in the world. And um, that's on, ongoing, right? Exactly, it's every single, every single week users provide new predictions to us. Okay, so you, you would describe ultimately what, what's happening is as one big data science tournament. And so that started in uh, December 2015, had some kind of stats I managed to pick up through, through media. At one point, it was reported that there were 7,500 faceless coders paid in Bitcoin. Um, I can't remember what year that was and who it was by, but there was this idea that it was, first it was Bitcoin, so I imagine it was a while ago now because presumably you're paying people out in, in your native token. Can you talk about the community and, and its scale and how, how you might describe some of the different types of stakeholders that make up that ecosystem and that game? Yeah, I think it's more like now, even as much as like 40 or 50,000 sort of signed up users. But the number we care about is like, number of stakes and the people who are staking are the ones who are saying, not only do I think my model's good, but you can burn my cryptocurrency if it doesn't perform well. And that negative incentive uh, is very powerful to have along with a positive incentive. So in the past, people would sign up to Numerai and make lots of models and just hope they get lucky. But if you tell them, you know, you got to stake and we'll burn, then suddenly they, they make one model that's really good. So yeah, the staking has been a really important 
uh, feature. And the people who stake do a lot better than the people who don't. The number of stakers right now is something like, it was about 300 uh, in January, and now it's about 600. So these are people, and they're not staking a little bit, like together those 600 people have staked um, over $3.5 million. So some users are staking $200,000 on their models. I think there's one guy who's staking half a million dollars. It's pretty cool to have that because, you know, there are many Numerai employees who don't even have that much money in our fund. But this user is saying, no, he believes in his model. He believes his predictions are going to work. And he's put a lot of money to say that, that, that that's true. So that is the way to do this. You couldn't make Numerai without the staking part. That's why there is no, there's never been a kind of internet hedge fund to date because no one solved the crowdsourcing problem. And the way we solved it was you have to put skin in the game, just like you would if you were in a hedge fund, you'd, you'd get your employees to put money in the fund. And that's kind of what the users are doing, except they're not putting money in the fund. They're, they're staking it on their specific models predictions. Yeah, and it's an often overlooked thing, you know, when people talk about how tokenization can allow for incentivization, they normally think of it in, in terms of po- positive incentivization, but obviously having a, a cost to play is also a great way to filter. And for you, ultimately, whilst of course you, you, you want lots of participants, what's most important is, is the quality, I guess. So how do they then participate beyond that particular transaction in Numerai is it is it through the value the, the value of the token going up based upon is there some linkage between the performance of the fund itself and how any individual can can share and be rewarded in that performance? Yeah, so the token you know kind of goes up and down with crypto uh, a lot of the time, and so it isn't it isn't connected to the value of Numerai or the fund. Um, and it goes up and down kind of with demand. But what's cool is that there is actual organic demand. So when people are buying Numerare, they're buying it to use. Like there is no way to use Numerai and earn money without staking. Uh, if a new user joins Numerai, he has to go out and buy some NMR to stake. And so having that organic demand I think is the main driver of the token. And then they're staking on their individual predictions. And that's kind of important. Like, I don't think we want, in some of these DeFi protocols, you sort of stick money in a contract and then you earn interest kind of for doing nothing. That is not how Numerai works. You're, you're staking these tokens and then you're earning money because of the work you're doing. Um, and if you stop predicting, you'll, you won't earn anything. And so Numerair is kind of more valuable to someone who's staking it than someone who isn't. And that's a very important property. Yeah, interesting. So the, the recent 3 million that you raised was cited as being for the, the rollout or development of Erasure Bay, which is your kind of next step in evolution. And as I understood it, this is taking some of the principles of what's been happening at Numerai but applying it to data marketplaces more generally, is that an accurate description? And can you talk about why that is important or an evolution of what you've been doing previously with Numerai? Yeah, so Erasure is just like the protocol, the name of the protocol we used to do all this staking and griefing. 
we made a first version of Numerai like in 2017 that we released for Numerair and, and then decided let's turn it into a proper like protocol that maybe other people can develop on too. And certainly we would want Numerai to run on it too. So it's kind of like something we're building anyway for Numerai. And once we launched it, we, we decided, okay, well, let's make an app that's kind of very different from Numerai to prove what the protocol can be used for. And that's what Erasure Bay is. It's a way to buy information of any kind over the internet with a bit more trust than you're used to for the internet. And so the way it works is someone can go on and put a request. Well, I'll use a real example. I, was, I said to someone, uh, I'm looking for Vitalik Buterin's home address. <laughs> and I staked uh, $1,000 or something like that on this request. And now someone can see that I'm very serious about that. Um, if I just put that as a tweet, they might think I'm joking or might think I won't pay them if they, if they provide it to me. So by staking it, they can see that's a blockchain transaction. That money is actually locked up somewhere. Um, and then they can put the work in required to get that information for me and know that they're gonna get paid, okay? But that's only one piece of it. So what about if someone provided the wrong information? So someone did provide the wrong information. Uh, he came and he, he put up his own stake saying, I wanna, I wanna give you Vitalik's home address. And he put up his own stake, said, Vitalik's home address is Vitalik.eth. <laughs> <laughs> so he was kind of joking, um, but that wasn't what I was uh, looking for. He was given, he was kind of given all the money, but I had the right to burn it. So he was given $1,000 for providing the information. But I looked at it and I was like, that, I'm, I'm, I'm unhappy with that. So I had the right to burn it. So I burned the whole, the whole $1,000 and his stake. <laughs> and um, that transaction shows you the kind of wh why the protocol works. So next time he provides data, I don't think he's going to like mess, mess around with me like that. Um, I've got a lot of crypto to burn. And then in, in the good case, it's, it's usually just, you know, there's no griefing required because the guy was, the guy provided the exact information in the exact right format. So Erasure Bay has already shown that, uh, you know, Erasure can be used for anything. It's good for NMR because when the tokens get burned, they're burning NMR. And it's also like a neat crypto application that couldn't have existed a few years ago. I think it's got some potential for sure. I won't ask why you wanted Vitalik's address. You don't want to send out a SWAT team or something. I'd imagine there'd be a more of a premium if you could figure out where CZ lives, but that's a, that's a different subject. Maybe I should speak <laughs> that now. Yeah. So I guess the natural extension, to, I mean, well, actually, so, so firstly, is the idea that, I mean, you're just open sourcing this and you're just going to organically see how it develops. And yes, there's some direct application for what you're doing at Numeri, but other than that, it's to just watch it, watch an experiment in how the game theory of something like this plays out. And presumably you're going to tweak that or are you just kind of going to leave it in the wild? Yeah, it's a good question. I really like things that uh, work automatically. Uh, I've got no interest in like business development. Um, <laughs> I like it when, you know, and that's what's great about hedge funds is if you make a hedge fund that goes up, everybody wants to invest and you don't have to do any business development and uh, no one takes their money out. And so it's, it's really nice. Companies that require business developments, you know, just require different founders. <laughs> Erasure Bay 
I think what's been quite cool about it is it kind of has grown automatically. It's sort of like been doubling every month. It's only been a few months. The stakes are growing up. People are getting very interesting things. People have been asking for scans of people's lungs for, who have COVID, um, and that's been successfully provided. Uh, people are asking for all kinds of things. And so I like that it is kind of working automatically. We've never run ads for Erasure Bay. And as soon as it's all integrated with Twitter and Ethereum, so it's really easy to use. And anytime someone makes a post, it gets tweeted. So it's kind of automatically viral. So I quite like it how it is. But there are things on the horizon that are very intriguing to me. For example, uh, Ethereum is making a new... So Ethereum is basically a way to sign up Ethereum application very easily. And they're working on a new version that helps for other things that prevent Erasure Bay from growing. So one of the things is, what if you've never used crypto before? How do you get your first die? And that onboarding problem is being solved by other people. And once that's solved, suddenly uh, Erasure Bay's numbers will just flip even more. So suddenly it's way easier. So the average person who signs up is way more likely to use it because they, don't, they can get the die. So those kinds of problems are being solved uh, by Ethereum, which is pretty cool. And I think that it'll get better automatically, Erasure Bay. But I also have other ideas for other applications of Erasure. And I do quite like the, I do kind of believe in the, if you've built a protocol, the easiest way to prove it is a good protocol is to, is to use it yourself. To have Numerai be powered by Erasure and uh, have three and a half million dollars of stakes on it, which is like more than Augur and Melonport and Dharma combined, that's just running this code that anyone else could use too. So I think it's quite early. I'm not like, I like the, uh, the approach of make apps that people use and then people will use the protocol. At the outset, do you have a strong opinion on how that would be governed. So let's say you do believe that there's something fundamental that needs to be tweaked for it to be more effective. How would that decision happen currently? And, and would there be a plan to kind of evolve the governance of Eurasia? I kind of think governance is a bit of a scan at the moment. I think the thing we've always cared about, it's been the least correlated with um, price. It's funny, like the things that no one's using are the highest priced cryptocurrencies in the world because they had a focus on press or on part, fake partnerships or something like that. But I think if you focus on usage, you kind of, in the long run, you can't be wrong. So we'd rather get, I think governance matters, you know, when, when like a million people are using it or something. And it's very easy to, at that stage, uh, allow for that. So so far, we're just running it like we're trying to make apps that people use. And uh, that's the sort of framing of, of Web2 in a way. It's like, hey, make an app and make people download it. Don't write a white paper. Don't do any of that. <laughs> just get people to use it. Um, and I think that is, that is the starting to become the right approach because usage, you can use these things. You don't have to speculate. You don't have to write a white paper because the technologies are already there. Like no one's stopping you. You needed to write a white paper pre-Ethereum launch, right? Because if you, like Orga, they proposed the Orga stuff long before Ethereum launched. That's when you needed the white paper. Now you just need it to make something that people use. Yeah, and I think that makes sense as something that we've advocated for in terms of 
you know, if you think about these things as just startups, uh, just like in a networked form, and therefore, you know, you would want to take that lean approach. You would want to be able to iterate, evolve it fairly easily um, until you found fit. And then maybe you might consider how you might decentralize it a little bit more or whatever other way that you would measure uh, different forms of governance. That's actually quite a nice segue. So as I said, you, you've been in the space for a while. I mean, Enigma is 2015, right? And I'm presuming you were, you were kind of in and around the space a little bit prior to that. You've raised in 2015 and, as I said, just closed in 2020. What's the same and what's changed? Have you seen the industry evolve? You're just referencing this idea that, you know, pre-Ethereum, a white paper might have been important. What are you finding investors are most interested in now? As I said, you've done a really great job of consistently attracting the best VCs, uh, it looks like they've been following on their money throughout. So, uh, you know, can, can you talk us through how you fundraise and how you do investor relations and, and this kind of stuff? Well, so in the more, more recent rounds, I didn't think, I kind of always think people don't want to invest. <laughs> uh, I always just assume it's going to be this very difficult thing. And so, especially during the coronavirus stuff, like we started raising this recent round, like in March of 2020. So it was kind of like a terrible time. And then, but luckily, you know, I was able to say, uh, guys, this is just a formality. I'm giving you notice. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm leading the round. I'm going to take the whole round myself. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but you know, if you want to invest, uh, you're welcome to. And then, uh, so I think that puts up in that, in this particular kind of environment, it is good to have, first of all, the founder wanting to invest himself. And then second, you know, like also showing commitment to and be on the exact same terms as the other investors. So I think lately that's been uh, the main thing that helped us was just me, me being in the round. So I bought a million dollars of Numerare myself in December from the company. And I also bought a uh, half a million dollars uh, in June. I think that's one of the things that's helping. Um, yeah, I think people also like, investors also like to see that you're kind of committed to something. I think Numerai is a unique company in that first principle sense I described. It won't be true five years from now or 10 years from now that ensembling multiple or uncorrelated models is a bad idea. It will always be true that ensembling multiple uncorrelated models is a good idea. So whether Numerai works or doesn't work, fact is there. So the question is, is the founder gonna live into that truth? Is, is there a kind of configuration of the company where we are reaping the yield from that first principles situation? And that's why when you have a company with a strong first principles argument and a founder who's definitely not gonna quit, those are the ones that I like, and I'm sure I try to be like that. Interesting, so are you also doing angel investing yourself now? Uh, I've, I've only, I've only invested in three things, I think, Ethereum, Augur, and Polychain. <laughs> and so I have a good track record, but I also, uh, don't really see myself as an investor except for the thousands of public equities that I run in my head. <laughs> yeah. Great. Well, look, Richard, it's been a pleasure 
talking to you. And I think, you know, the fact that you've been here since 2015, you're still going, you're only five years into your 150 year journey, but still it's, um, it's a good innings and you seem to still be smiling and you have been referenced as one of the nicest guys in the space. And I think hopefully the, the listeners would have, uh, that would have come across for the listeners. So thanks so much for your time and good luck with both Numerai and Erasure Bay. Thanks a lot. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3.